Hello, folks, and welcome to the Sense and Theory podcast, where we cut through the bias and extremism in order to find... No, 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 not today. No? Not today. No, let me tell you something. We have done a run of episodes with some super heavy topics, and we're just, we're not doing it today, man. We've done, we've done ethics bill minutia. Yeah. We've done civil wars, electoral colleges, religious extremism. Islam and Christianity. Dude, it's time to lighten up a little bit. I agree. I'm honestly psychically drained. So today, we're going to have a little fun. We're going to put on our Robert Stack trench coats. Okay. And we're going to talk unsolved mysteries. So I need a new intro. Hit me from the top. Hello, folks, and welcome to the Sense and Theory podcast, where we explore the mysterious and the spooky in order to entertain and expand our concept of what reality is and can be. I'm Sense. And I'm Theory. And that's a damn fine intro, my friend. Thank you. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, today is going to be a blast, I think. Today we're going to talk about mysteries and the reason we're doing it is because who doesn't love a mystery, man? Who doesn't love the idea of the unexplained or, you know, the big lingering question that nobody has the answer to? I love the idea that today with the, you know, the internet and, and all the technology that we got, there are still things that stump all the experts. That's right. And every now and again, we find the answers, which is really cool. Like yeah. the stones that slid across the desert, leaving like mile long trails behind. And we finally found out that ice was seeping up through the sand and the wind was catching them just right and pushing them, making tracks. Like that's cool, but that's not going to happen today. These are all unsolved mysteries and probably unsolved forever. Yeah. Given the nature. It, no, of we've them. got some, we definitely have some tough nuts to crack today. And that's, you know, I mean, also, I have to admit that I just love puzzles, and I think that that is part of the allure of mysteries and, and Sherlock Holmes and all that stuff is just is puzzling things out. It's the chase, man. It's yeah. not about the, it's the chase, you know? So uh, I am really looking forward to it. But before we jump into that, uh, first off the bat, we have to give a big shout out and thank you to our newest patron, Will. Will just became a patron this week, and we thank you, sir. Yes, every dollar counts. Uh, thanks for becoming a theoretical supporter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I do have to admit that actually our desire to have a little fun this episode was partly inspired by last week's release of our Patreon bonus episode entitled Space Cops. Uh, as you guys might remember, our buddy Pedro stopped by a few weeks ago to help us with the uh, the Fermi episode. And while he was here, we recorded a short bonus episode in which he and I, joined by Sense and Beans, resume our long-standing argument about Star Trek and whether or not the Federation are really just a bunch of space cops. Spoiler alert, the Federation is really a bunch of space cops. They are the feds, yo, I'm telling you, man. But uh, So that's the fourth bonus episode that we released so far, and it's uh, those are available to all our patrons at the $5 tier and up. Yeah, and that's cool for you guys who miss the uh, every week format because we drop those episodes on the off Thursday. Um, so you can kind of get back into the swing of things and catch us every week if you like to. And we've got no shortage of topics. So while yeah. we are going to try to drop one every single week, we might miss a couple here. But I think for the most part, we're going to keep them coming just we about. Have, we have no week. shortage of topics. We're... Beanzo's world-class taco recipes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. helpful household hints with theory, Sense's guide to macrame, you name it, we're going to have a bonus episode about That's it. That's right. So let's, uh, let's strap in. I think it's time. And let's journey into the world of mystery. <laughs> that was unnecessary. But you. anyway, uh, we're going to kick it off today by talking about the group Cicada 3301, a shadowy crypto group who led the internet crypto puzzle community on a massive journey. 
Uh, and the name to me actually speaks volumes because uh, cicada, that, that's an insect that spends most of its life underground as a nymph. And they typically emerge in large numbers every 13 or 17 years. And note, those are prime numbers, uh, which are incredibly useful in cryptography. Mm. Uh, cicadas are also what's known as a cryptic species. And that means it uses techniques and abilities to avoid detection from predators. Uh, 3301 also just happens to be a prime number. And not just <laughs> any prime number. It is the 464th prime number, and just 464 years prior to the first Cicada puzzle being posted online, one Giordano Bruno was born on Mount Cicada oh, man. in Italy. So Giordano was a brilliant mathematician and philosopher, narrowly eclipsed in the history books by Galileo of Galilee, uh, and he proposed that the stars were distant suns surrounded by their own planets, which might foster life of their own. He believed the universe was infinite and had no center. And he also died, burned at the stake, after being tried by a Roman Inquisition on charges of the denial of several core Catholic doctrines. You have come prepared today, my friend. <laughs> that is, whoa, that is, you are almost reaching like QAnon, like Gematria levels, man. I mean, it is. Well, it is, yeah. yeah, so the, the connection to uh, Giordano Bruno may be a little bit tenuous, <laughs> but the facts we're going to lay out about Cicada are not so tenuous oh, at no. all. Cicada's crazy, man. So, all right, we go back to the start. On January 4th, 2012, a message appears on 4chan. It's plain white letters on a black background, and it reads, Hello, we're looking for highly intelligent individuals. To find them, we've devised a test. There's a message hidden in this image. Find it, and it will lead you on the road to finding us. We look forward to meeting the few that will make it all the way through. Good luck. And the message was signed, 3301. Which is kind of weird, but if you've ever spent more than five seconds on 4chan, that is easily not the weirdest thing on yeah, 4chan. Yeah, no tentacles anywhere, man. <laughs> yeah. So opening the image in a text editor revealed a string of encrypted text and a reference to Julius Caesar. This was a reference to a Caesar cipher, one of the simplest and oldest methods for encrypting text that goes all the way back to, you guessed it, Julius Caesar. Decrypting the text revealed a URL that contained an image of a duck with the words, Whoops, just decoys this way. Looks like you can't guess how to get the message out. This was a reference to a program called OutGuess, which in its simplest form is a steganography program used to hide messages and images. And I want to stop a second and talk about steganography because steganography is really cool to me. Yeah. Um, that's the practice of hiding a message uh, within something totally obvious. So it's not a method of encryption. It's a method of obfuscation. Uh, it's like Da Vinci encoding Mary Magdalene into the Last Supper, you right, know, the plot right. of... Uh, no, the Da Vinci uh, Code. Yeah, the Da Vinci yeah. Code, exactly. Uh, the earliest known examples of steganography go all the way back to about 400 BC when leaders would need to send messages to other leaders. Uh, they would do things like scrape the wax off a tablet, then carve on the wood underneath, and then recover it with wax and put another message on top, or even like shaving a slave's head tattooing a message onto his scalp, <laughs> letting the hair regrow, and then loading them back onto the slave cart and, and passing them on the way. Right. Um, we, we've even had rumors that uh, the 9-11 hijackers used forms of steganography to communicate yeah. about the hijacking prior. So it's a way of, of passing a message in plain sight. Nowadays, people do it with images uh, across the internet, and you can encode all sorts of wacky things in the image, and unless you know it's there, all you see is the normal image. If you know it's there and you know how to retrieve it, then the message is yours. Yeah. 
And so it's it's not something that was like really like a secret or anything. You know, people had done it for various things over the years. But boy, did it take a turn with cicada, man. So so if you extracted the message that was hidden in the image, you it yielded a URL to a subreddit where there was a book cipher and a substitution cipher. Puzzles on puzzles on to get puzzles. a phone number. <laughs> Calling the number led to a pre-recorded message revealed that there were three prime numbers associated all the way back with the first image. And you had to go back and use those prime numbers. Are we having fun yet folks? Oh man. It's like, you want to talk about going down the rabbit hole, man. It gets so complex. And and what was one of the coolest things about Cicada was this thing was way too big for one guy to sit down and figure out. There were forums that spun up. People were on, on group texts and, and chat programs, yeah. sharing information back and forth. And if you followed the thing, there were wild assumptions and, and stuff, just, you know, connections here and there. Oh, look at the angle of this and divide by, you know, all that crazy stuff came out. Yeah. But some of them were right on the nose, which yeah, I think yeah. is really neat. Well, the thing, the thing is, is that, so we have the 2012 Cicada puzzle, right? But another puzzle came out in 2013. Another puzzle came out in 2014. Another part of a puzzle came out in 2016. They continue to come out. And yeah, to your point, uh, you know, there's an article in the Telegraph who uh, a guy named Chris Bell, who's been kind of following Cicada since it launched. And this is what he had to say back in 2013. He said, it's a scavenger hunt that has led thousands of competitors across the web, down telephone lines, out to several physical locations around the globe and into uncharted areas of the dark net. So far, the hunt has required a knowledge of number theory, philosophy, and classical music. An interest in both cyberpunk literature and the Victorian occult has come in handy, as has an understanding of Mayan numerology. It has featured a poem, a tuneless guitar ditty, a a femme fatale called Wind who may or may not exist in real life, and a clue on a lamppost in Hawaii. Only one thing is certain. As it stands, no one is entirely sure what the challenge, known as Cicada 3301, is all about or who is behind it. Well, I got to say, this sounds like one of those ARG games well, that companies use to promote products and get puzzle solvers and, and, and neckbeards on the internet involved. And of course, it's all some big marketing spin. Right. Hey, buy my product. Right. And as a fan of ARGs, and I've been a fan of ARGs for a long time, my friend, this is not an ARG. It's a whole nother ballpark. So I, I got into ARGs somewhere, you know, in the vicinity about 10, 12 years ago, right? I think the first big one that I ever did was for the movie Cloverfield. And there is a completely different feel to, you know, an ARG in general, really, and this. And, you know, so if we're talking about like a company ARG or like a corporate ARG, you know, you clearly are able to figure out fairly, fairly shortly into the game what it's promoting or at least what it's connected to. You know, there's somebody always does like a who is and finds, you know, that traces back to a movie studio, <laughs> to, to you a know marketing company. Yeah yeah. 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 Um, and even when you have like homebrewed ARGs, you'll have some of the stuff that we'll see in cicada, some of the, the, you know, steganography and stuff like that. But the scale of this is so much different. The complexity of this when you get up into the higher, you know, towards the end of each puzzle, because the puzzles generally each year they're released, they last about a month. When you get towards the end, for instance, in preparation for the show today, I tried to refresh myself on, you know, some of the end game of the 2012 puzzle. 
I don't understand math well enough to even begin to explain it to you. I don't. I sat there and I was like, okay, well, I can, I can, I can shorthand this into that. I was like, no, man, I don't even know how they got it. Cause it requires like, there's an intersection of like programming and, right. and, and math and things that are like triple enciphered and stuff. And it's just, it's just beyond anything that we've ever seen in the world. Of yeah. ARGs. Even, even a person who's a puzzler. Yeah, would have a hard time with this stuff. I mean, it, mathematicians with PhDs in some cases would have a hard time right. with some of this stuff. And in fact, mathematicians with PhDs have been involved in solving <laughs> some of these puzzles. Yeah, no, absolutely they have. And, and that's another thing that, you know, when I got to thinking about it, when you have ARGs for the most part, they encourage the group. Like you said, you've got people, you know, on forums and stuff working together and the ARGs know that and they try to they try to take that into account when they release their puzzles. Well, and, and stuff. An, I'd say an ARG is not going to be successful if they're cutting out their audience, right? Right. You right. kind of have to appeal to the the lowest common denominator there. Yeah. Cicada doesn't look like that at all. Cicada no. looks it, like they're trying to separate the wheat from the chaff, and they only want the real good wheat. Well, what's interesting is a number of times through the various Cicada puzzles. There have been points where a message is included with a clue that says something to the effect of, uh, you're working too closely together. From here on out, we're only going to accept the first however many people that get this clue figured out. We want leaders, not followers. Wow. And it makes Cicada feel very much so more like a recruitment tool than anything else. I'd like to highlight that the, in 2014, at the end of the Cicada puzzle, this thing dropped. And it's called Liber Primus, okay? If you followed through the cicada puzzle and you went uh, at the end, it forked, which is another weird thing. Like some people who got to the end got one response and the other people got Liber Primus. And Liber Primus is a, a 58-page collection of runes. And it, and it looks like the Book of the Dead or something. And yeah. it's obviously something they created because it's got this cicada, the cicada the iconography all over, yeah. all over it. But it's it's written in like Lord of the Rings runes. Right. And and to this day, we're in 2019. That dropped in 2014. Like you said, people with math degrees going at this thing, only 17 out of the 58 pages have been decrypted. Wow. We've never seen anything that difficult in a, in a, in a commercial ARG. And that's what, what was really interesting uh, about Cicada is you slowly saw it like in, in real time start to dawn on people, right? So there's one point during 2012 uh, with Cicada where all of a sudden, you know, this, this one clue was decoded and there were 13, I think it was 13 or 14 GPS coordinates <laughs> that corresponded to places around the world. Yeah, we're talking like Moscow and stuff. Yeah, like Warsaw, Hawaii, Australia. I mean, you, you all over the world. And it, it started to occur to people. They were like, what is this? Like, this isn't, you know, again, there have been commercial ARGs that have done things like that. I can remember one for, uh, there was a Terminator TV show and I can remember actually directing a guy over the internet to where he needed to go <laughs> in Houston, right? Three steps left, uh, no, <laughs> yeah, two steps yeah. forward. <laughs> but you never, you never see anything like that with the homebrews. And so, okay, if it's not a homebrew and they're not advertising anything, what yeah. the hell is it? Who the heck is it? And yeah. I, I think it's obvious that it's it's definitely a recruitment tool. I mean, you've got the message like, we want leaders, not followers. Right. Um, you know, we're going to talk about a guy who came out and talked about his experience with it a little bit later, mm -hmm. um, but they definitely recruited him. So the question is, 
Who's doing the recruiting, yeah. right? I mean, are we talking NSA? Are we talking CIA? Are we talking MI6? Like, is this a government-sponsored uh, entity? Whoever they are, they have an abundant amount of knowledge because some of these clues led to the dark web, Yeah, which the average person has no clue how to navigate the dark web, much less set up a website on right. the dark web. Oh, there's, uh, I saw one today where it, uh, you had to like set up your own server and it had to do this and that, you know, and I don't, I don't really have all the language to describe it, but, uh, the requirements for some of these things are crazy. And what's, what's interesting, you know, I, again, I will say that I've never seen an ARG, not that they're not out there, but I've never seen an ARG throw people to the darkness, not like a commercial. One right. Like that. And, when you start to think about like the implications, like who else could it be but the NSA or the CIA? Who has the manpower and the resources, not making a profit off of this thing that we know of, to sit there and have people develop and, and have the brain power of a group of people to sit there and develop puzzles this complex? Yeah, and the Libra you know, Primus is a, is a perfect example. I mean, not only did they create their own language of runes, yeah. <laughs> but they put this huge thing together and yeah. and obviously it's a group of people i don't think we can rule out um just a group of private actors i mean yeah. a, a, you know a, programmers tend to collect on the internet and they tend to do things they love and um c computer security is one of those things that kind of draws people into networks i could see some people getting together with some really big ideas about changing the world um and 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 needing to find just the right people and devising a way to get those people to come out of the woodwork. Right. Well, there may be some credence to what you're saying. And, and the evidence for that comes from the testimony of, of a kid named Marcus Wanner, right? So in 2015, Rolling Stone did a story on Marcus Wanner in Cicada. And he says that when he was 15 years old, believe it or not, in 2012, he reached the end of the puzzle. And he goes to, you know, he describes like what all happened. So, you know, he discusses at first, like, you know, how the community congealed. And I mean, in fairness, I say he was 15 years old. He wasn't alone. He was a part of a bigger team. I forget exactly what they, I think they called themselves the decryptors or something like that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there was uh, something to the effect of nine or 10 of them and they were working in conjunction and everything. And, uh, you know, according to him, when he reached the end, he got an email and, and this is what the email said. It said, congratulations. Your month of testing has come to an end. Out of the thousands who attempted it, you are one of the only a few who have succeeded. There is one last step. Although there will not be any hidden codes or secret messages or physical treasure hunts, this last step is only honesty. We have always been honest with you, and we expect you to be honest with us in return. You have all wondered who we are, and so we shall now tell you that we are an international group. We have no name. We have no symbol. We have no membership rosters. We do not have a public website and we do not advertise ourselves. We are a group of individuals who have proven ourselves much like you have by completing this recruitment contest. And we are drawn together by common beliefs. So that's, you know, very much so, you know, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head, at least if Marcus Wanner in this email were to be believed. Yeah. And I actually, I actually found a statement that Robert Wanner had posted to an internet forum or something, and I've included that in the show notes. It's a great read. Everyone should go, uh, go check it out. It takes a couple minutes, not terribly long, uh, but it kind of describes uh, what Wanner was going through. Yeah. As to as to like what the motives of this group may be, well, that email it, it keeps going. It says a careful reading of the text used in the contest 
would have revealed some of these beliefs that tyranny and oppression of any kind must end, that censorship is wrong and that privacy is an inalienable right. We are not a hacker group, nor are we a wares group. We do not engage in illegal activity, nor do our members. If you are engaged in illegal activity, we ask that you cease any and all legal activities or decline membership at this time. We will not ask questions if you decline. However, if you lie to us, we will find out. You are undoubtedly wondering what it is that we do. We are much like a think tank in that our primary focus is on researching and developing techniques to aid the ideas we advocate, liberty, privacy, and security. And I think this piece, if we're to believe Wanner, this piece puts it in focus. I I think it is a group, just like they say, of like-minded individuals and and I don't think it's a government organization, and and the reason is because they're asking you not to participate in illegal activity, right? Uh, right? I don't think that like the U.S. government, the NSA, while if they had some kind of recruitment process, you know, sure they'd ask you questions about it and stuff, but I don't think they'd go this far out of the way. Hang on a second, are you telling me that you are more inclined to believe that it is not the government? Because they ask them not to break the law. Because of the way they're doing it, right? I know, but what is interesting to me? Right? Well, I because I I feel like they're saying like we're vulnerable, right? Right. And if our members are engaged in illegal illegal activity, then then we're vulnerable through you, right? The NSA is not going to care. They're going to make a call to the FBI or MI6 if one of their members gets caught in illegal activity, and and they're going to send their agents over and and shut it down and keep whatever needs to be hidden hidden. These guys aren't them. So they're saying like, look, you've got to step away from this. Do you smoke weed? Do you sell weed? Like, no, sorry, you're out. You know, do you, do you, do you do anything, you know, on the fringe? You're out Uh, because they don't want to be found out. The, the other key here is, is the talk about liberty and privacy, Mm -hmm. um, which makes it really interesting to me um, because those are two things that are very anti-government, yeah. Um, right. I mean, all the governments of the world essentially have huge arms of surveillance that are out there trying to filter and gather data. They're not trying to fight those ga- those data yeah. gathering operations. Right? Right, right. So any group that's expressed purpose is 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 freedom of information and, um, you know, and, and <laughs> liberty well, you know, we, is, is not going to be a government agency. We almost we almost have to mention. So one of you know, one of the theories that got knocked around at the time especially since, you know, this trailhead, which is what they call the beginning of an ARG puzzle quest. But anyway, uh, this trailhead popped up on 4chan. And then with the way that they were talking is that this was a splinter cell of like anonymous of like, like some people would become disillusioned with anonymous, didn't like the hijinks or whatever. And, and, you know, are, are seeking to separate themselves. Mm-hmm. And I, I could see something like that. That kind of helps explain you know how they're you know so organized for a a group of civilians you know if you will because that's that's one of the things that one of the things that bugs me is i've seen you know i've seen behind the scenes like what it takes to make like a, a a way less complex arg and for them to turn these puppies out once a year (laughs) <laughs> is is pretty damn impressive, right? So that's to me, that's what kind of begs the case for them being on a payroll somewhere and da 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 da. But maybe not, you know. I mean, it's it's it, it really is hard to say. From that point, what happens is, uh, Wanner and the other people. He said, I think he said it was about two dozen who made it through before. You know, the we want leaders, not followers. There was a cutoff, 
And if you didn't reach the end of the puzzle by a certain time, you didn't make it through. But about two dozen of them were gathered up in like a chat room on a website uh, in the darknet. And there were cicada members in this chat room and the other, you know, quote unquote winners. And um, they basically, you know, the cicada members answered questions, but he said they were always fairly vague about it. And, uh, you know, about the questions they were asked, like, uh, for instance, um, they told the recruits, you know, they started at, they were like, okay, I, you know, we got your email, but like, seriously, like, who are you? And, you know, Cicada said, um, you know, we've been, we're started by like-minded individuals and swelled over time as friends recruited friends. Uh, they said they had no official affiliation to any government or military and that their members belong to various organizations around the world. You yeah. know what I mean? So like, it was never anything more concrete than that. Um, but eventually, and they also, I should mention, described that Cicada was organized in decentralized cells and that no one cell knew what the other cell was doing. Of course. Is, yeah, which is very interesting. <laughs> so they told all these people, they were like, okay, so you are a cell now, and here's what we would like you to do. We would like you to brainstorm up something, uh, some piece of software that helps, uh, you know, achieve our ideals. Right, supports the ideology of the group. Right, and Wanner said that basically his cell came up with this idea for a dead man switch program that was dubbed the Cicada Anonymous Key Escrow System. And the idea is it would help whistleblowers protect themselves. So according to that statement uh, from Wanner that I mentioned that is in the show notes, uh, this cake software actually sounds pretty cool. Uh, it's essentially a decentralized uh, switch of sorts for encrypted information. So it would allow someone to widely disseminate encrypted materials and then automatically release the key if no one checked in after a period of time. Uh, he says the group cited instances of academics and investigative journalists being abducted or murdered to suppress the information they held as inf as as a uh, uh, inspiration for the project. Right. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Um. You know. There's, gosh. There's countries all over the world murdering journalists for the information they hold. Yeah. Uh, it also kind of harkens back to to WikiLeaks with Julian Assange's yeah. dead man switch. Well, he said that they were specifically inspired by what was going on with Chelsea Manning. At the time, and Chelsea Manning, who had you know obviously linked the DOD files, I think at the time was you know facing a trial or whatever, and uh, and that's the idea that they came up with. Um, unfortunately, he said over time, you know everybody was real into it, but uh, he said, and, you know this is his, uh, you know he was 15 at the time, I guess when the interview came out, he was 18, but still from his 18 year old perspective, he's like, it, it kind of got to be like work. I mean, we were really <laughs> building this program. And he said people started to to kind of disappear. They started, you know, they stopped logging into the Darknet site. And it's not that they, you know, like literally disappeared. Right. Which is, which is interesting because I should mention publicly, all these people who won stopped posting in the group. Sure. Uh, 3301, you know, solution forums. So everybody else did start to wonder where all these people went to, right? <laughs> but for instance, Wanner was real close with somebody else who managed to finish the puzzle. And, you know, he's still alive. It's not like he, he just stopped going to the website. So it got down, according to Wanner, where it's just him, right? And this is like by the winter of uh, 2012 going into 2013. So, I mean, it didn't even last like a year. Right. And, and, he, and he's there asking for help. He's like, yeah. I'm the only one left. This project's almost finished. You've almost yeah. got, where is everyone? Can you please recruit more people to help me? Yeah. And radio silence. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, he said Cicada, the members would tide him over, you know, and say, we're going to figure something out. But then the 2013 puzzle came out, 
and he thought Lanner thought, you know, oh, okay, well they're going to recruit comes the more whole people. Influx. And then at the end of the puzzle, nobody showed up. And he realized that basically they they were a new cell. So twenty thirteen. That that was it, at least his speculation. You know, you know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like Wanner uh, broke the first rule of Fight Club, yeah. right? Like, yeah. and and all these people were slowly pulled out of his orbit because yeah. they're like, oh, this guy's dangerous. Yeah, he's yeah. a talker. He's a well, speaker. No, in fairness, he didn't talk for another three years. He didn't. I, yeah, I realize that. I'm just yeah, saying. Yeah. You know, he if he's the, he's the <laughs> only one that's ever come out to talk yeah, about he is. their he, well, experience with Cicada. He, so so maybe they nailed him on that yeah. way ahead of time. That's true. That's true. And he he is the most credible one. Obviously, every year people come out. I have saw. In fact, I think it was at the beginning of the 2014 puzzle. It could have been 13. The day before, the day of actually, that the trailhead dropped, that the new puzzle started. Somebody posted this thing that in cicada lore is called the warning. And it was this long diatribe about like, you should stay away from cicada and da da da. Now you gotta, you gotta remember like in context, nobody had heard anything from cicada for a year. Right. This guy drops this post eight hours later, the trailhead drops. Uh-huh. Right? So it was, it was real <laughs> weird. But anyway, he was saying, you gotta stay away from cicada. Uh, they're coming, you know, they're a nefarious organization and all this stuff. And then he, and then he kind of went down that, that rambling, I found Jesus, you know, 4chan hole yeah. that, you know what I mean? So who knows what that is, but yeah, Wanner is probably the most credible person to say that he's finished the puzzle. Easily. Yeah. And he had a lot, he had a lot of inside information. I mean, I, when I, when I read through and of course you never t- you can't tell if people are lying, but I think it's interesting because we know, we know for a fact that this puzzle drew in hundreds if oh, not, thousands. if not thousands of people yeah. into their recruitment pool and mm-hmm. everyone for the most part has been entirely mum. So when people yeah. say to me, and I, when I'm talking about conspiracy theories or something, oh, that's impossible. No one, no one could ever keep that big of a secret. I mean, you need look no further than something like Cicada. Yeah. You just don't talk about Fight Club, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what's interesting to me is there was a portion of, of the, what what do we want to call it? The post game, right? Before he got pulled into the 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 secret website or whatever, but after he'd won the puzzle, right? Where Wanner said he was subjected to these questions that were really abstract, right? It was almost like they they've been likened to the personality questions that Google asks when it's recruiting new employees. Uh-huh. And in further puzzles in later years, there were reports of much the same questions. I read one today and it was something that like um, a man uh, says that a lake is beautiful. Another man says that it's full of fish. Which one is lying? And, and the people had to answer that question. And that's just what it is. You know, whatever their answer was based, you know, kind of through some unseen force determine which ending they got to the puzzle. Interesting. Right? So the question becomes, you know, is there some tech company? It's like the sorting hat, man. Is yeah, is there some tech company that's trying to use it to recruit the best and brightest? See, I I don't Which think so. Google, I have to mention that Google has done things like that. Google put up a billboard with with encoded text on it and when you but the thing was is it was very easy when you decrypted it, it said we want the best and brightest exactly. and we think that you're, you know what and, I mean? And that's kind of my point is like an organization that wants to recruit isn't going to recruit people in in secret necessarily. In in other words, they're going to let the person they're trying to recruit know who they are because right. no one comes to work uh, for someone they have no idea about. I mean, you're getting right. a paycheck eventually. You know who's yeah. giving you the paycheck? You got to know. So I don't think I think this is exactly what 
Wanner describes it as. I think it is a decentralized group of of very smart people who have a goal and and can't work in the public sphere for obvious reasons because they're working against world governments who are trying to collect massive amounts of data um and and kill privacy. Yeah. I will say that it is a possibility, but I will also point this out. I don't know that Wanner and his friends were the first couple through. So I don't really know who what the actual ending of Cicada was, right? Like even if I believe everything that he said, I don't know that he was one of the first. Mm. So what if, let's just assume for a second, let's say it's the NSA, let's say it's uh, Cobra, right? From G.I. Joe, let's say it's Cobra, right? Cobra! Like, what if the whole, you know, privacy and identity and all that stuff, what if they wanted Wanner or one of those people to say that that's what they're up to. So so Wanner's kind of their you know patsy of sorts. Right, like, right. Like, you're like, hey, let's the last 20 people, we'll let them in, we'll tell them all this, and then we'll tell them they can talk about it. Yeah, or to say <laughs> the truth, I don't even know they didn't come to Wanner, and that wasn't his goal. Like, when, the, when they got done, at the end of, you know, when his group was dwindling down, they were like, look, this is what we need you to do. Hit up a Rolling Stone guy, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so I'm still, I think, man, it's, it's still very much open. And I, I think this is a perfect example, one of those mysteries that we just don't have enough to go on. And yeah. I don't think it'll be solved. I don't think we'll ever solve the mystery of Cicada 3301. That is, unless you solve the puzzle yourself and find out what's going on. No, I'm totally going to figure it out, man. <laughs> so sliding over in the, in the same vein of steganography, we're going to talk about a mystery where it's it's laid right out in plain sight. Literally right out on Main Street. That's right. Since the late 1980s, hundreds of tiles have been found embedded in the asphalt of streets in two dozen major American cities and four South American cities. And with slight deviations in wording, lettering, color, etc., all of these tiles bear more or less the same message. Toynbee Idea in Kubrick's 2001, Resurrect the Dead, on planet Jupiter. That is that is weird as shit. <laughs> and so when we say they are, you know, right out on Main Street, I mean literally embedded in the road. They think whoever is putting these tiles down is using this this combination of like they take linoleum, they they make the tile, and then they use this crazy composition of Elmer's glue and asphalt glue and all this stuff, and they lay it down on the road. And people drive over it. And over time, I mean, this stuff, it is flush with the road. the concrete, yeah. So um, they seem to originate and be concentrated early on in Philadelphia. But since then, they've been found in Kansas City, Boston, Washington, D.C., San Francisco, Portland, Roswell, Tulsa, Detroit, Cincinnati, Salt Lake City, Santiago, Chile, and Buenos Aires. Some have even been found in major highways, with one being found in the middle of I-95. <laughs> this person really gets around. <laughs> yeah. Man. And so that that, you know, immediately begs the question: like, who is putting all these tiles down? Like you can see it start in Philadelphia and start to outreach and stuff. Well, but- he's gotta be crazy. Whoever it is has gotta be a nutcase. Cause he's talking about resurrecting the dead <laughs> yeah. on planet Jupiter in connection with Kubrick's 2001 <laughs> Space Odyssey. Well, we should what we should note that while okay, so with all the other tiles showing up, there are people who are copycatting, right? They know that for a fact. And in fact, there's there's some street artists, you know, not not Banksy, obviously, but you know, artists like that who it's kind of a, a rite of passage to put their own Toynbee tile uh-huh. out, right? 
Um, and so, you know, that not confuses things. Not, I don't like that at all. Not every single tile is, has been put down by the original Tyler, but you know, people Toynbee tile enthusiasts, as they're called, uh, that is, that is a big, you know, debate between them. Is this the original Tyler or is this, you know, and as recently as 2014, they are pretty sure, uh, uh, the original Toynbee Tyler had laid some tiles. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, like he's still out there. Yes, there are some copycats. Some of the ones, you know, the one in Santiago, Chile, they're pretty sure was an original Toynbee Tyler, you know. So so what do you think about this message? What do you what do you think this means, man? I I taken by itself, I have no idea. <laughs> all right. So I can I can tell you that obviously the speculation starts with Arnold Toynbee. And Arnold Toynbee is a noted uh, British historian and philosopher. You know, he wrote a bunch of books, especially in the middle of the 20th century. And he, you know, he was, he was fairly popular. And so, you know, right there at the beginning of the message, you know, in big bold letters, you have Toynbee, Toynbee idea, idea, right? So what is the Toynbee idea? So there, there's a, there's a quote we've got from Arnold Toynbee's book, Experiences. Uh, human nature presents human minds with a puzzle, which they've not yet solved and may never succeed in solving, for all that we can tell. The dichotomy of a human being into soul and body is not a datum of experience. No one has ever been or ever met a living human soul without a body, someone who accepts, as I myself do, taking it on trust that present-day scientific account of the universe may find it impossible to believe that a living creature, once dead, can come to life again. But if he did entertain this belief... He would be thinking more scientifically if he thought in the Christian terms of a psychosomatic resurrection than if he thought in the shamanistic terms of a disembodied spirit. When you take that quote and then you see the Toynbee Tower go on to say, resurrect the dead on planet Jupiter, instantly you realize that that this guy may be talking about like the real, like Frankenstein, let's literally yeah. resurrecting people <laughs> on planet. And also, I mean, uh, uh, Space Odyssey 2001. Right, right. No, spoiler no. alert. No, absolutely. So, you know, he says, you know, in Kubrick's movie 2001, well, it turns out that there are all sorts of connections between the movie 2001 and um, Arthur C. Clarke, who helped write the movie 2001, and Toynbee. Right. Really? There's actually, okay, one of the stories that 2001 is based on is a story in which the ship Toynbee goes to the planet Jupiter, right? And, and, and don't forget that in 2001, ultimately, that's where the mission is. The mission for Hal and, and Dave and all them, they are going to right. the planet Jupiter. Well, at the end of 2001, Dave goes, oh, sorry, yeah, big spoilers. Dave goes, you know, through a wormhole, basically through the monolith. And he ends up on the other side of the universe. He's sitting in a room and he watches himself like live his entire life, age and die. Right. And then he's reborn Reborn. as the star child, right? As the fetus, the fetus and the, you know, everybody's seen that image with the glowing light behind it. And then the earth is right there and everything. So yeah, there are all these weird connections. There's another connection to a, a Ray Bradbury story that's called the Toynbee Convector. And in that story, there's a guy who builds a time machine and he names it after Toynbee. And, and the reason he does is because he's inspired by Toynbee's assertion that, you know, in order to survive and thrive, humankind must always rush to meet the future and believe in a better world and, and has to aim far beyond what is practically possible to nice. achieve things that are barely within reach. That's, that's like a central thesis to a lot of Toynbee's work. 
And so when you Sounds take, a lot like these tiles, right? Yeah. <laughs> Just barely within reach. Like we understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Kind of. I, I got I mean, when you take all that together, I, I don't have any idea. I mean, if I had to guess, <laughs> this guy thinks that humanity is going to find a way to resurrect the dead on planet Jupiter, and he's doing his best to get the word out. Yeah, and it's his know? duty to get the word out whatever way he can. I, I think it's cool. It sounds like Toynbee... Uh, who is not the creator of these tiles, obviously, right, right. Um, has served as a major influence for like cultural creators. Oh, Arthur yeah. C. Clarke, uh, Stanley Bradbury. Kubrick, Ray yeah. Bradbury. Yeah. So he's on to something there. And in fact, I've uh, full disclosure, I've ordered the book Experiences. I'm going to read it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just to see what's going on. But uh, but wow. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Know what I'm saying? What? This guy is, is so uh, driven. Yeah. Prolific. That, that, yeah. that he's he's gone across the world to spread this message, and it's and it's cryptic, and and you know what does it mean? I love it, and he's yeah. using art to do it, and this is in a in a world where you know radio fine if they let you in, TV you can speak to millions of people if they let you in the door. This guy has bypassed and usurped all of those things and put his message right in front of our faces, and yeah. I, and I love it. I think it's great. It is, it is great, but we do have to mention that there is a caveat with it because oftentimes the Toynbee tiles, while they all bear that one message, you know, more or less, um, they will have little addendums down at the bottom. And there are a couple tiles that have been placed that don't have the, the, the main message, right? There's one actually that's, that's called the Tyler's Screed. And that one, that one actually is, is really important to what I'm saying here because there is a big one in Philadelphia that lays out what can only be described as a rant. And it is a rant against John Knight, who is, you know, one of the founders of the, the Knight Ritter media empire. They uh -huh. own a bunch of newspapers. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's railing against journalists, not believing him about Kubrick and Jupiter and all that stuff. <laughs> okay. Uh, he rails against the Russians and he also rails against the Hellions, who he says are a secret society of Jews, and that all of these forces are conspiring together to hide the secret of Jupiter <laughs> oh, from us. Boy, this is like the birth of fake news. This, yeah. this guy's like on the fake news train before Donald Trump. What no, the heck? Absolutely, man. And, and you know, one of the, um, so for instance, uh, there was a clue on one of these little addendums, like the the tile that's in Santiago, Chile, has an address to a place in Philadelphia. But hmm. people went to that place in Philadelphia, talked to the people there. They have no idea what's going on. They're pissed off that people keep coming to the house. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you know, so people looked into who used to live there. That was fruitless. You yeah, know, yeah, we so looked this, into the Hellions, right? The, the Hellions have yeah, never the, been mentioned no, anywhere. You know, else. there's a Hellfire Club and some you know some conspiracy theory, but no Hellions. So there, there is a chance that the Toynbee Tile guy who wants to resurrect the dead on planet Jupiter is just crazy. Man. There's a chance, you yeah, say? Yeah, no, there's a really good chance <laughs> that he's just crazy, especially somebody who's, you know, been going around and planting tiles for 30 years, you know? Crazy like, cool. When you start to, yeah, when you start to look at it from that way, it gets a little darker, but you know, 
How would he even how would he even get these tiles down? That's what blows my mind. They're all over the place, all over Philly. They're in in Santiago. How is he getting these things on the road without someone seeing? I mean, I can imagine him going in like uh, you know, bright uh construction colors, setting cones out. Yep. But like someone would see it, right? Right. Well, there is a theory floating out there that he has a car that at least on the passenger side has no bottom. And that he basically just parks over top of the street and puts the towel down. Oh, right? that's slick. Fred yeah. Flintstone over here. I love it. <laughs> so it's it's a huge mystery as to who puts down the tiles, but there is actually uh, one clue to kind of go on, right? So I got this from Wikipedia, but, you know, I checked it out and it, it, it checks out. In 1983, a man identifying himself as a social worker named James Morasco contacted talk shows and newspapers with his theory of colonizing Jupiter with the dead inhabitants of earth claiming to have come across the idea while reading a book by historian Arnold Toynbee in a conversation with the Philadelphia Inquirer, Morasco discussed how Toynbee's book contained a theory on bringing dead molecules back to life. And that this was later depicted in the movie 2001, a space odyssey. The caller had founded what the Inquirer called a Jupiter colonization organization known as the Minority Association. And interestingly, he also was on the, uh, you know, the old 1980s version of the Larry King show. Like well, he called in. Mystery solved. James not, Marasco. Not quite. Because when people go to and track down every James Marasco that lives in Philadelphia, they can't find him. Hmm. Every James Marasco. Like they went to, you know, one lady and, you know, her husband had been James Marasco and he had passed away, you know, and, and people, you know, talked about talking to her and she was like, he, he would never know how to put tile down. You know what I mean? Like he just wasn't that guy. He was an accountant, you know, <laughs> one guy was a railroad worker and for various reasons it doesn't fit. But so far, none of the James Morascos have really panned out. So people think that the guy who was calling in was using that as an alias. And if you look at some of the, the paranoia, like in the Tyler screed tile, like that, that would check out. Sure. You know what I mean? Like he probably would be the type to use an alias, you know? I think until we catch this guy laying a Toynbee tile, I think this is going to be one of those unsolved mysteries. Yeah. One of those things that's just, eh, yeah. who knows? But from beautiful, sunny, and scenic Philadelphia, kind of go with me here. <laughs> Let's kick it down to beautiful Georgia for yet another mystery. That's right. This is one of my favorites. We're going to be talking about the Georgia Guidestones. And on a fine day in 1979, this is in the midst of the Cold War. You've got nuclear bombs being aimed across the continents at each other. A man going by the pseudonym R.C. Christian walks into the Elberton Granite Finishing Company on behalf of a small group of loyal Americans promoting the concept of conservation of mankind with a vision for a project. The scale is ginormous, astronomical. It's huge. Uh, there are to be four stone tablets. The four major stones are each 16 feet tall and weigh an average of 42,437 pounds apiece. The monument overall is 19 feet 3 inches, uh, made from six granite slabs in total, weighing 237,746 pounds. No small undertaking. <laughs> Now, those numbers are pretty exact, and you might be wondering, how do we know that? Well, we know it because there's an explanatory stone that sits over to the side of the monument that lists all the physical stats of the monument itself, but also has other interesting facts. For instance, it details that the mon all the monument's astronomical features. 
The four outer stones are oriented to mark the limits of the 18.6-year lunar declination cycle. The center column features a hole drilled at an angle from one side to the other through which can be seen the North Star, you know, a star that moves very gradually over time. Um, that same pillar has a slot carved through it, which is aligned with the sun's solstice. solstice I'm going to go with solstice, and uh, I can make it what I want it to be, and equinoxes. A 7 8 inch aperture in the capstone allows a ray of sun to pass through at noon each day, shining a beam on the center stone indicating the day of the year. I love it. There Also, the explanatory stone, also it mentions a time capsule that's supposed to be buried right underneath it, but the date for it to be buried and the date for it to be opened on are blank to this day. <laughs> this is awesome. So as you can imagine... This thing is going to cost a pretty penny. Yeah. Uh, and Joe Finley at Elberton Granite connects R.C. Christian with Granite City Bank President Wyatt Martin. Wyatt, of course, thinking, who is this crazy guy, uh, demands that such an amount of money necessitates dropping the veil of anonymity. Yeah, they ain't just co-signing that low. Right, <laughs> and, and, and Christian agrees. He says, okay, uh, as long as you agree, Wyatt, to take this secret of my identity to the grave, we, we can do this thing. Wow. And a partnership begins, and they start building this giant monument. And that makes Wyatt Martin the only person in the world who knows the true identity of R.C. Christian? Well, I got to be honest with you. I, I don't even know at this point if I care about the true identity of R.C. Christian. It, what is the big deal exactly? I mean, what this effectively means is that Georgia has its own version of Stonehenge, and I don't really see where nuclear war comes into play at all. So I didn't mention what was on the stones yet. No, you did not. So, so let's get into that for a second. Uh, a message consisting of a set of 10 guidelines or principles is engraved on the stones in eight different languages, one language on each face of the four large upright stones. So moving clockwise around the structure from due north, these languages are English, Spanish, Swahili, Hindi, Hebrew, Arabic, traditional Chinese, and Russian. Boy, so, that just got all the bases covered right This there. thing functions as a Rosetta Stone, as something you can set a calendar by and, and track the lunar cycles by. I mean, it's, it's pretty swift. It's pretty neat. And again, this is in the middle of the Cold War. So you've got tons of people thinking the world might very well end. So in, this lang in these languages, this is what's written, which is kind of the cool part of the Georgia Guidestones. Uh, one, Maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Two, guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Three, unite humanity with a living new language. Four, rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. Five, protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. Six, let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court. 7. Avoid petty laws and useless officials. 8. Balance personal rights with social duties. 9. Prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite. 10. Be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. Leave room for nature. 
That is heavy as shit, bro. <laughs> like a modern day Ten Commandments. Yeah, this guy man. thinks he's Moses, man. No, and, and what's really interesting is so now when you snap those things together, yeah, I mean, these are guidestones. Like, it, it really does feel like these are to be the things that will help humanity rebuild in the event of, you know, nuclear annihilation, man. That's right. And, and, and something weird happened after, after these stones were, were put in. And I think most of it hinges on the 500 million population figure. People started spinning up all sorts of wild conspiracies, right? This is the, the New World Order's plan, and, and the time capsule date is blank because they're going to fill it in the day before they blow up half the world. Yeah. Um, you know, And if we filled it in now, then people would know when that date was. Oh, that's smart. Well, actually, and you'd want to get like the most recent shit, right? Right. Like you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't want to put something in from like 1979 and we don't blow ourselves up from 1989 we didn't even have walkmans in 1979 that's right that's right so so this kind of attracted all sorts of attention from conspiracy theorists of course because this has all the hallmarks of a good conspiracy right well, it does it does okay it does does it necessarily require the nuclear war like it does Maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. If that's happening after a nuclear war, we're assuming right, we're already below then, 500 million. Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's hopefully that's what it is. But if you also look at it as, you know, 10 guiding principles for civilization, and we're well past that, <laughs> we are well past 500 well million. You well know? past. <laughs> like it, it does. Yeah, I could see where some people might, you know, start having some questions. And I also know it also didn't help that after the Guidestones went up, you had like, you know, uh, witches and, and warlocks. And oh, stuff yeah. Like that. They were having ceremonies and marriages and stuff at the Guidestones. People came and had seances. They were climbing to the top of the stones and lighting candles. They and were this, spray painting, uh, you know, pentagrams on, on the stones, trying to break them and things. And this was every day. This was, you know, constant influx of people. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because Wyatt Martin, I found a quote from Wyatt Martin that said, the mere fact that it is a mystery as to the identity of the people will lead others to come and look at the stones and wonder who put those stones there. I don't think Wyatt was thinking these are the people who yeah. are going to come, right? Yeah, right. I don't think he thought a bunch of a bunch of teenagers having orgies <laughs> and rituals on on Georgia property was really the idea. Well, it also actually now that I think about it, it raises an interesting question, right? So allegedly these stones are erected by a mysterious figure who represents a group of people named R.H. Christian, right? R.C. Christian, sorry. Um, but if you look at Mr. Martin's quote there, and then we talk about all the tourists and pagans and warlocks and whatever that came to see the guidestones and stuff, all of a sudden it looks very beneficial for Elberton, <laughs> Georgia. Of, for the town <laughs> yeah. of Elberton. Yeah. And, and it's interesting you say that because Elberton is, a, is very much a granite town. It's a town that was built on monuments. And in fact, people would come through Elberton uh, looking for a cheap monument for for their own gravestone or a family member's yeah. gravestone, and they turned them away and said, "And eh, now we're 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 wholesale distributors, you know. Besides, it costs you too much to ship it." But my point is that that Elberton is very much um, a a town that is built on the granite industry, mm -hmm. and the people that are connected 
to this mystery directly. Um, Wyatt, uh, the guy, Joe Findlay, they've all kind of talked about being promoters of Elberton. So right. in interviews and things, when they talk about it, this was very much for those people of Elberton, uh, an opportunity, and they make no secret about it, to bring tourism to Elberton. Yeah. And they fought kind of tooth and nail along the way to keep it in Elberton. Yeah. So there was some confusion about where the stones might go up, and 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 they worked hard to keep it there. So yeah. I don't think we can take it off the table. But I would also argue that, fair enough, if I'm the mysterious R.C. Christian, what better place to go and get my stone monument erected than in the the apparently the world capital for granite quarrying. There you go. And secondly, if I'm going to get a a bank president to swear to take a secret to the grave, then maybe he should be getting something. And maybe that's how R.C. Christian, you know, sold him on it. Maybe he right. was like, because he is, you are asking a, I, I take it Elberton is a small town, to, you know, take on a certain level of hoopla that's when, right. when you do something like this. That's so, right. So it, do we know anything about the possibly genocidal and possibly well-intentioned <laughs> R.C. Christian? Well, sort of. So several years later, uh, in 1986, there was a book called Common Sense Renewed that was published by a Robert Christian. And this book was sent to uh, all of the all of the sitting senators, I believe, and mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of influential people in American politics. And in the first chapter, it talks very clearly about the Georgia Guidestones. I was going to say, I saw, I think I saw a copy where the, it was on the cover. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. This this book was very much entangled with the Guidestones. Now, that's a that's a backwards connection, right? Anyone right. could publish a book and and say they're Robert Christian. Obviously, Robert Christian was a pseudonym. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to say whether this is the same person. But a lot of the things in the book do have, uh, you know, I mentioned the Guidestones outright, but also yeah. have connections with the idea of population control, mm-hmm. um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in chapter three, uh, cultural evolution, he he extols the virtues of the complexities of life, and he makes observations about the transmission of messages and ideas between people and generations of people. And at, at times, it it almost feels like he might be teetering towards like ethno nationalism. But he he explains his desire to preserve culture and and all cultures, um, and, and values and ethics, and and he cites our diversity. Uh, as sort of a bulwark against the chaos of the unknown. Uh, it's it's quite an interesting read, and, and I didn't read the whole thing. I, I kind of skimmed it before yeah. today's show. Uh, but I do have some quotes to give you guys an idea of his, uh, his sort of attitude. Uh, he says, In America today, we're witnessing a number of social changes that are causes for concern. The first has to do with the widespread instability of the family unit. The second relates to an increasing dependency of many citizens on government agencies for their financial support through a philosophy of entitlement fostered by elected officials, which assumes that Americans with financial problems are automatically endowed with the right to preempt from taxpaying fellow citizens funds to support them in idleness and comfort. The third cause for grave concern relates to the widely apparent dependence of many potentially productive citizens upon drugs and alcohol as a means for narcoticizing or avoiding the stresses of life's reality in our industrialized society. 
He goes on and says, Toleration of established routines is neither good nor evil per se. Conformance with proven standards inherited from past generations has often sustained human societies through perils that otherwise might have proven fatal. Cultural inertias can be beneficial. A thousand people welded together by common principles can be more effective in the world than a thousand individuals going their separate ways. Yet a thousand individuals forced by tradition to follow the wrong path may be destroyed if they fail to heed warnings from nonconformists who perceive dangers unrecognized by the general mass of humanity. So in a lot of ways, I mean, he's he sounds like just your typical, what, Reagan conservative no, or something. No, he does. He does kind of. And, and it's really weird because that doesn't, that doesn't seem to jive with what's on the guidestones, right? <laughs> I mean, sometimes when I look at, at some of the various quotes from the Common Sense Revisited, Renewed, revisited, Renewed, yeah. I think, yeah. Um, I, I, it, I hear a 1985 Reaganite, you know? But then when I go back to the guidestones, I see things like uh, rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. I see things that, that don't quite jive with that traditional family leave room value. for nature. Leave yeah. room leave for, for nature. For nature. <laughs> Let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court. I can't imagine a Reaganite. <laughs> Reagan Republican like, court. yeah, you win, baby. <laughs> yeah, it's man. a little bit weird, right? Well, he goes on to talk about the importance of, you know, family values, marriage, uh, traditional marriage and, and warns about the dangers and failings of social welfare programs. He says, uh, while collective action is no doubt required for specific social problems, it's likely that greater overall advantage will accrue from tax incentive programs that stimulate private initiative in the generation of economic activities and in the creation of full employment for all citizens capable of productive labor. A properly tuned incentive economy will provide greater benefits for all and will bring the added advantage of maintaining our personal liberties. And, you know, I kind of agree with him, but I feel like I got to be the canary in the coal mine at this point and, and, and point out like, yeah, that's all fine and dandy, but this is, this is way before automation was on the scene. And, and now I feel like, dude, in, in 40 years and a hundred years and 400 years, taxi drivers are gone and you're going to roll your eyes at me <laughs> because this sounds exactly like what people were saying at the beginning of the industrial revolution. Yeah. But man, what happens when, when your, your guys here at the top, um, don't need people to drive their, their taxis and, and provide the work for their supply chains or even mine their granite from, from Elberton. When we've got robots at every, every piece and position of this thing, what what happens to us? And I think that's the question. When when people looked at the guidestones and said population five hundred million, what what are we going to do? I think they're asking the wrong question, right? Yeah. What are we going to do with all the useless eaters? Once the the people who think like this RC Christian mm -hmm. or whoever wrote this book, um, once the useless eaters are are a majority. Right. What what do we do? Do we just wipe us out till we're till we're five hundred million and then well, control birth and population? Well, and I I have ideas about that, and I do think that largely like the industrial revolution, we will adapt, and it won't quite be as bad as maybe you think it's going to be. But aside from that, 
I don't think R.C. Christian has a clear, concise answer because on the Guidestones, I continuously see support for the ideas of collective action. Mm. And yet here in Common Sense Renewed, I see something that's directly going at collective programs or collectivism, if Mm. you want to look at it that way. And that's what it leads me back to. You had said that R.C. Christian walked into the office representing a group of people who, you know, wanted to, I forget what it said exactly, or, you know. Uh, Conservation of humanity. Yeah, the conservation of humanity. And and I begin to wonder if whoever it is that wrote this book is is somebody who is shot off from the main group or something. Maybe uh-huh. there was like a collective thing. Something's wrong with this book is what I'm getting at. <laughs> it, it doesn't, doesn't quite jive, right? Right, right? Yeah, it's almost like maybe the group had tempered this guy in, in the creation of the Guidestones, and, and he's kind of off on his own tangent here now six, eight years later. Yeah. Um, and, and he lacks the, the tempering of, of the other people in the group that kind of grounded it. And, and it's funny because the Guidestones are very much non-political. I mean, right. you don't see anything about ideologies or, you know, nothing that screams conservative or screams liberal. You get hints, but what's interesting is it does, you do see, uh, hints that go either way. Like for instance, there is a line that says avoid petty laws. Mm. I mean, if that doesn't, you know, avoid petty laws and useless officials, if that doesn't <laughs> scream conservatism, right. You know, or traditionally what we think of as conservatism, but like we said, there are other things, you know, the leave room for nature and stuff mm-hmm. that now there is like, at times there are weird confluences of, you know, libertarian ideals. You and me and talking about this episode joked that, you know, maybe it was a group like us and they were, they were warring back and forth with their ideologies. And that's kind of the middle ground that they had settled on. So, I mean, I can see that, but I could also see here, here's another interesting point to me. This, this book, like you said, was sent to all of Congress, right? Yeah. Like every Congress person got one back in, it was 1985, I think. Um, Reagan had, Reagan won by such a landslide in 1984, it is, it is actually the biggest landslide of all time. He won every state except one. And I'm not saying that there wasn't, you know, your Ted Kennedys and Joe Bidens and all that stuff in Congress. But if there was ever a Congress that didn't need somebody to preach to them about <laughs> some of these things that R.C. Christian's preaching about, traditional family values and tax incentive programs right. for private <laughs> action, that was that Congress. So it's weird. It's almost like... I start to wonder if somebody is trying to co-opt the stones. Maybe, maybe this book has nothing to do mm. with the original RC Christian. Mm. You know I think what I, mean? I think that's plausible. I think that's very plausible. Although there there are parts that that mesh very well with the uh, with the guidestones, especially the part about uh, birth control and stuff. He says industrialized nations are increasingly burdened by the social and monetary costs of raising children produced by irresponsible and inadequate parents. This is a grave injustice for those children and for the taxpayers who are burdened with the expense of providing them with food, clothing, education, and housing. No society can remain strong and productive if it tolerates wholesale irresponsible parenting. No longer is reproduction exclusively a personal matter between two individuals. More than any other human action, it affects all of society now and in future <laughs> ages. What? Yeah, society can provide practical incentives and disincentives to guide individuals in their childbearing so as to protect the legitimate long-term welfare of the larger social group. This must be done, even though at times the wishes of individuals uh, must be made subordinate to the needs of the state. 
Reasonable compromises can achieve a balance between the individual's rights and those of other citizens. And he goes on to talk about like atheistic Russia um, and, and the evolution of religion from medieval superstitions to a meshing of this basic guiding morality with the scientific understanding of the many <laughs> wonders that surround us. Of course he does. <laughs> he finishes that chapter uh, wondering about what the second coming of Christ might look like, and in a very surprisingly non-secular fashion, finishes the chapter with, it is to be hoped that the spiritual message of the great religions, of the great religions, uh, will continue to thrive and to increasingly dominate and inspire the lives of a perfected human family until the last person fades and dies on this remote planet. Okay, let me. Unless, of course, we're all resurrected on Jupiter. Unless we're just terrific. saying. Yeah. <laughs> let me. Let me. Let me try to pull this together for a second. So, a tree-loving hippie, yeah. Reaganite, yeah, <laughs> uh, is simultaneously um, arguing for. Uh, basically, China's child policy, right? Get the government China's involved. Child policy, <laughs> child rearing. That that he wants to somehow do with tax incentives. Oh, he's a big fan of privatization too, <laughs> and he's really into religion. Atheists are bad, but all religions are good. <laughs> Who in the hell is this? I, you know, I almost feel like this is, is like he? some. I almost feel like this is some shitty at, attempt at like a politically unifying theory. You know right. what I mean? Like, what right. is this? Well, it's funny. Some people speculate um, that R.C. Christian was Ted Turner. Uh, Ted Turner <laughs> well. obviously has the means. Yeah. Um, he's he from Georgia, Georgia, right? Yeah, yeah there you right. go. Billionaire Ted. Billionaire Ted in Georgia. Um, and and uh, some people say that's ludicrous. I don't know. There were some descriptions that that flew around of this guy as he traveled around Elberton, and Ted Turner kind of matches the descriptions. So obviously that's like that's easy pickings, you know. Yeah. Oh, it's, but there's no. It's hard. It's hard to imagine. I mean, not not saying that the wealthy don't have their ways, you know, and especially back in the seventies. But but man, Ted, that was kind of his time to shine, and and especially. With all that happened with Jane Fonda and Vietnam, you know, she was super popular too. The idea that like Ted could sneak anywhere, you know what <laughs> He's I mean? Like in the, wandering in the around late Elberton, 70s and 80s, you know? Uh, scanning sites and stuff. <laughs> well, I know that some folks, in light of the population control and some of those passages, you know, they argue that there is a subtle white supremacist ethno nationalist vibe, and I wouldn't even say subtle necessarily. I mean, it's it's it is it's it's dog whistling. But when he's talking about you know being increasingly burdened by the social and monetary costs of raising children produced by irresponsible and inadequate parents, like you can almost hear um, the racism. You know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Uh, you can almost you, hear it. He, it never quite crosses the line. Well, what's interesting about it is I think like he says all the things that you would say if you were making that racist argument, but he never makes the racist <laughs> argument. And the question is, if he's anonymous and if this is his screed that he's launching out to the world and he is racist, why not be racist? Right. I mean, like, you know, maybe maybe it would, you know, impact the message. Maybe he had that much forethought if he's, you know, racist and he's like, well, they won't take me serious if I put racism in it. But like, I, I somebody who's motivated to erect a monument and or a group. See, I can't even I can't even wrap my head <laughs> around this being a group. Like, what group gets along this well to invest in? You know, what million dollar project? Easy. You know yeah, what I mean? Easy. However much it costs. Um, 
and and has these disparate views. Not to mention the the racism doesn't really fly with me because in in Common Sense Renewed and on the tablets, he he talks about diversity and values yeah. it greatly. Um, and and there's a there's a, a vein of ethno nationalism. Don't get me wrong. Right. That claims they value diversity, but they also value the purity of the race. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Like yes, we want we want diverse nations, but we want the white one white, <laughs> and we want the black yeah, one we black. Want, we want all manner of white people. <laughs> right. Yeah. We want the Chinese Chinese. Um. So you know, I could see ethno nationalism. I I don't see racism. You know, I don't yeah. I don't see racism screamed from from the rooftops here. Um, is Ted Turner a racist? Is that why those two things would yeah, match actually, up? Well, <laughs> yeah, Ted's Ted's got some questionable things going on in his past. But you know what's weird about Ted is he's also, I mean, you know, Jane Fonda is about as liberal as it gets. And, you know, she actually, uh, uh, just last year, I think, she gave a speech where, you know, she was talking about uh, how, you know, uh, black women of color need to be lifted up. And she was a darling and stuff. Who knows? You know, I don't, I don't want to impugn her, her reputation. I'm just saying... Ted has got some eh, back <laughs> well, in the eighties. Regardless, know? I I think that the preface from Common Sense Revisited kind of puts things in perspective for everyone wondering whether they should just write this whole thing off. Christian says, "Like primitive farmers, I place these ideas on the threshing floor of the public forum, where that which is useless or in error, the straw, if you will, can be separated by the flails of critical discussion." I'm hopeful that when the residual chaff has been winnowed away, there will remain a few kernels which can be added to the store of human wisdom in a manner that will contribute to the general welfare. So well, he certainly talks pretty. I, I know. I, <laughs> yeah. and, and I think he's got a good heart, right? Like whatever this is, I I don't see any um any hatred, any any dire, you know, yeah. motives or or anything sinister Anywhere along the way, I mean, with the exception of the 500 million thing. Which, again, which, I mean, if it's supposed to be post-nuclear war, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Bingo. Makes know? perfect sense. Um, so, I, you know, I think we should leave the ideas that are bad on the on the threshing room floor. I don't think the government should be involved if you have a kid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think you're crazy, Christian, if you're yeah. out there listening. Yeah. Uh, no, that's one of the, that is one of the freedoms uh, of humanity that is the most sacred. No, I, I totally agree. But I think that, you know, whether, whether RC Christian, uh, is the most politically interesting person that has ever lived or whether it's a group of individuals and all that's, that's, that's cool. That's, you know, quite a mystery, but we have done an entire show about mysteries and not once have we said anything about the Freemasons? Uh -huh. And I cannot believe that. Tell me there's a Freemason connection with the Georgia Guidestones. There is not only a Freemason connection, but Freemasons are all over this thing. In fact, there was a quote from one of the guys that, that built the Guidestones, and he said that every hand that touched these stones on the way from the quarry to the erection was a Freemason. I mean, they're stones. <laughs> of course the Freemasons are well, here. Well, right, and it's it's no secret, and, and Freemasonry's origins are are in stonemasonry, right? right? And in in ensuring good wages across uh across national lines, you know, across yeah. the world. You could find yeah, a they're Masonic the OG Union, man. Exactly. Yeah. They're yeah. the OG Union. You could find a Masonic lodge somewhere that would guarantee you good wages. And they also encoded the secrets of building 
uh, within their teachings, you know, right. how to how to level and how to square and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they also use those symbols as uh, as you know with with other meanings and. Uh, well, it goes back to steganography, right? They're, yeah. they're kind of hiding uh, hiding the meaning in plain sight for all, all of connected. us rubes down here. Um, but but the connections to secret societies in the occult, uh, they don't end with Freemasonry, actually. During my research, uh, I found some video that briefly flashed a document which is alleged to be contained within the Guidestones time capsule. Now, I couldn't find that actual document, so this is actually transcribed from that brief flash in the video. Hang on, hang on. You paused the video and were like furiously like copying down <laughs> what you could read. Man, the mystery is afoot. Here we go. Uh, contained herein are keys that have been awaited to be placed here in proper sequencing and in proper order to announce the return and the activation of those events of prophecy that signal these events. Those who have guarded this great mystery and who have guarded the evolution of the human species itself are returning. It has begun. This monument, known as the Georgia Guidestones, shall find threads unto the revelation of its mystery in the name R.C. Christian, otherwise known unto that contingency that is responsible for the erection of this mon monument as Christian Rosencrantz. Thirteen seventy-eight to fourteen eighty-four, right? Because Christian Rosencrantz is the mysterious figure. Some people actually, you know, say that that was a pseudonym that founded the Rosicrucian order. That's right, which is an order that uh, supersedes Freemasonry. Uh, it's uh, you know, I, I can't maybe came along hand in hand, yeah, but think... it's a very similar type of secret chain oh, organization absolutely. that claims to hold occult knowledge. The Rosicrucians are responsible for everything. That's just right. Like the Freemasons. It, it goes on to say this presentation of keys upon the finding of it is to be delivered to the Elberton Star. The Elberton Star is to deliver it to the Atlanta Rosicrucian Society. The Rosicrucian <laughs> contact number is one. That number is derived from the synchronistic mystery of 404-294-4172 in Atlanta. It is only those with the understanding of the rose and its return who will be capable of deciphering the codes and the keys that are contained herein. Unto this great mystery shall it in due time be unveiled, likened unto she whose great portal reads only, Know thyself. Unto the unveiling of her wisdom. And then there's some unreadable stuff. Come indeed, the bridegroom bearing the knowledge of the perfect blending, blah, 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 hey, more hey, unreadable, no, no, the white this. to bring forth the gold, and through the purity of the rose it shall, blah, blah, blah. This monument has now been activated by that which was to come forth, uh, blah, its activation and technological understanding. No, no, I love this, man. <laughs> I love that we have, I love that we have know thyself into whose great portal reads only the Elberton stars to take it down to the Atlanta Rosicrucian Society, <laughs> all right? And the contact number is one, and then it's 404-294. I mean, was that a damn telephone number well, in the middle of that thing? funny you ask that, because it is formatted like a telephone number, so of course I do some Google sleuthing, yeah. and I Google the telephone number, and I come across a listing of Georgia societies, right? And we've no. got Elks Clubs, and we've got the YMCA, and... 
this phone number is listed <laughs> as the Atlanta Rosicrucian. Oh, I'm sorry, the Rosicrucian Order Atlanta chapter. The address is listed at 2906 East Ponce de Leon Avenue in Decatur, Georgia. And Google Maps says there's nothing there but an Enterprise Rent-A-Car, oh, y'all. Of course there isn't an Enterprise Rent-A-Car. <laughs> no, this is great, man. This is what? like the perfect intersection of, of hidden esoteric mysteries and good old boys drinking some shine down at the Rose Crucian Club <laughs> in downtown right. Atlanta. That's right. Oh, that is great. I love it. So with with that said, I have no idea who made the Guidestones. We know pretty well why. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. at this point it's pretty settled. There's not some organization that's, you know, gonna gonna slay half of the population and keep us under 500 million. Yeah. I think it was some concerned citizens uh, who had some ideas no, was that actually, they wanted to share for the world. It's a fairly nifty idea for something to have in the event of something like a nuclear holocaust yeah. or whatever. And as far as, I mean, I think we have reached the point. I mean, you got to think we are 40 years on and every day, it's almost like the Toynbee tile guy. The chances that we're ever going to find out who it actually was diminish every day. Well, unless there's a deathbed confession left or and right, man. I think yeah. why it might already be dead. Uh, yeah. Most of the people who are connected to the erection of these stones are dead and gone, and we'll probably never know who they really were. So there you have it, folks. There is three, you know, practically unsolvable mysteries. You know, mysteries that. People will continue to scratch their heads over. Maybe there'll be resolution. Maybe there won't. But I think I think it's fantastic that that exists. Me too. And I want to leave you guys with this. I I think there's something magical in a mystery, uh, a secret. In a world where secrets are scarce, where the prying eyes are everywhere, cameras on street corners, the NSA in every email, giant gaping security holes in the world's most abundant hardware, and a listening device in every single pocket— uh, the truth, a historical chain of events that's preserved meticulously, once by letters and documents stored in file cabinets and libraries across the globe, now gathered and contained in hard drives, in data centers, hundreds of billions of terabytes of knowledge and human history, ordered, known. It's precisely the chaos that a secret encompasses that is its power, the human need for privacy, the reason for the encryption keys. The protection from a tyrant, a bulwark against your own fears, or just a convenient vehicle to hide your shame from the world. In a way, a secret is man's futile attempt to create the boulder that God himself can't lift. Damn, man. And, and this has been our attempt to create the show that not even Beans himself can criticize. And Beans, can't. what you got? No, no, we're not doing a whole thing. This episode was dumb. Cicada is the FSB, formerly the KGB, the Toynbee Tile guys named Severino Verna, and R.C. Christian is the probable white supremacist Dr. Herbert Kirsten, who, fun fact, is a big fan of David Duke. Mystery solved, took 30 minutes on Google. Links are in the show notes. Uh, uh, uh. Fellas, back to you. 
Man, you suck the sexy out of everything. Can we not just have one thing, man? No kidding, man. That Dr. That Dr. Kirsten, that's classic case of the flawed messenger. But separate the wheat from the shaft. Leave it on the floor. Whatever. It doesn't even make sense. I saw that documentary, and it was bogus. They made these tenuous connections that didn't even... They treated that old man wrong, too, man. Wyatt did not deserve to go out like that. No, and it's, it's the same thing with Sebi. But yeah, I've seen the evidence for Sebi being the Tyler. It doesn't make Makes sense, man. How come James Marasco wanted to tell the whole world that he was a Tyler, but Sevy doesn't want anything to do with the documentary people? You didn't, you didn't solve nothing, man. You ain't solved a, a thing. Since, uh, since what are you doing? Leave me alone, man. I'm learning about steganography. Did you know that people hide things in the source code of websites? Hmm. Hey, y'all, this is Beanzo, beloved star of the critically acclaimed show, The Bean Pod. I want to thank all of you for taking a moment to check out my side project, The Sense and Theory Podcast. Remember, if you need an extra dose of truth and integrity between shows, you can find all the links to contact my social media team at senseandtheorypodcast.com. You can also join the movement sweeping the nation by donating five bucks a month and becoming an official Beanzo buddy at patreon.com slash senseandtheory. And finally, don't forget that my segments normally start somewhere between 55 minutes or an hour in. So you can always just skip ahead to the best part. Thanks. This is your gracious host, Beanzo, signing off.